Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Roundtable Podcast, where we interview experts who tackle the tough topics and share strategies and techniques that will help you start, build, and grow your real estate investing business. And now your host, Rob the House Guy. Today, we've got a couple awesome guests with us. We have Sam Livingston, which is a longtime real estate agent that's completed over 700 transactions in the past 14 years. Welcome, Sam. How you doing? And we have longtime friend of mine, Scott Doringer. I've been doing business with this guy for over 20 years and is an investor that is not a licensed agent. So for all you folks that have always wanted to get into real estate and you're thinking, can I be an investor and an agent? Should I get my license? We're going to get all those questions answered for you today. So welcome, guys. How you doing, Rob? Hey, so let's start with you, Scott. You've been doing this forever. Have you ever thought about getting a real estate license? I have thought about getting a license um, and then just decided just didn't need it. We were making enough money, we were doing enough deals that there was no competitive advantage for us. So we decided not to do it. Just decided not to do it whatsoever. Did you feel that it would have hindered you in any way to have a license? You know, we do a lot of different kinds of deals. You know, as you know, um, we buy, fix, we rehab, we do owner financing, we do rent to owns sandwich rent to owns and all those kind of things. And those are not the typical, you know, realtor things. And we just didn't want uh, Big Brother, you know, watching over our shoulder, telling us what we could and couldn't do. Uh, so, Sam, I know that you are an agent. Do you also dabble in any investing or are you primarily just an agent? Well, now I'm just an agent. I actually got into real estate because I had my, uh, I was flipping houses and I didn't like that type of realtor that I was working with. So um, that's how I got started. And I realized I, I like the real estate, the, the representation aspect a lot better. All right, let's dive into that in a minute. You said you didn't like the type of realtor that you were working with. Correct. Let's, de- without using names, let's define <laughs> that type of realtor. Okay, so this was obviously uh, pre-crash, pre-market change. So um, in my experience then, which was very little with real estate agents, I bought my first house for sale by owner, did all the negotiation myself. Uh, But then I started purchasing homes. And the type of agent I was working with then were primarily REO agents. So they represented banks and and pretty much banks alone. the traditional agent would turn their nose up at REO properties. They don't do those short sales. No, you know, so, so there was a, typically you had to go to an agent that knew those things. Those agents also didn't do things that a traditional agent would. They weren't very caring of the client. Um, I would tell you how, I can't tell you how many homes I got into uh, by myself because the real estate agent wouldn't leave their office and they would just give me the code. And I, <laughs> at the end, I said, why am I, pay- why is this person, I would see the, the Alta settlement statement at the end and I'd say, this, this agent had made how much money off of this deal? And uh, because I always went in unrepresented, so they got both sides. So I said, well, I'm going to get my license and then I'll be able to do what I'm already doing and earn my commission. Yeah, I think you saw the money for nothing aspect down there. You're thinking, <laughs> I'm doing all the work and you're collecting the checks. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, it does, that definitely makes sense on that. Do you feel that when you're dealing with agents, because you're not an agent, so sometimes, especially dealing with the REO aspect, that being forced to negotiate with a middleman slows you down a little bit? See, for me, I love realtors for the exact opposite reason he didn't, because they do give you the code. And uh, because then you don't have to schedule, you're not working around anybody else's schedule. And I love they don't make enough money as it is, in my opinion, doing these REOs that I want them making both sides. So we like, you know, networking with the agents who are doing these REO stuff um, because they just don't make enough, in my opinion. 
Right. That makes sense. I find that when dealing with REOs, it, it is you do get a much more relaxed agent that's not they're ba obviously baking cookies in the vacant house <laughs> to make it smell good. Let me stop and have a pause moment and explain what an REO is to the people that are watching here. REO is real estate owned. And that means that a bank has taken this property back. It went to share sale, did not sell, and then they ended up taking it back. Clearly, both of you know this already. but <laughs> Still just tell everyone here, so we're on the same page. So when you're dealing with these houses that are not bank owned, do you feel that, well, you're not an investor anymore. You're strictly a real estate agent. So now I'm going to go back to ask you. So when you're not buying a bank owned, you're buying just from Bob and Betty homeowner and you have that layer of insulation where you can't find their pain points and talk to them. How do you deal with that? You know, we don't get very many deals that way because of exactly what you had said. We can't sit down there. We can't feel, you know, what they're feeling and we can't understand what their, what solution they need. And when we can't solve a problem, there's no reason for us to be involved. And when there's a third party agent who's not investor, you know, experienced, they just don't have that mindset of how do I make a deal out of this? How do I hear what they're saying, create a package that an investor wants to do it and communicate it to both parties? That's pretty rare. Usually when an agent's like that, they're not an agent anymore. They're an investor. Exactly. I, I know you probably not like this. You, you seem like a very cool agent that, <laughs> that would, I would feel very comfortable for you negotiating on my other end, but I, I get some of the, the, the part-time, the part-time agents at home, and I'm not going to classify them down any further, but where they have no real real estate experience other than taking the class and passing the test. And they're clearly misadvising their clients on what's going on because I'll look at the house. I know how much it's really worth. I know how much it's going to take to do it. I know I'm giving a fair offer. I'm not trying to steal the thing. And they're coming back, and I know they're telling their clients they've blown smoke that, oh, no, <laughs> that you can get the full 100000 for this. How do you deal with those type of agents when you're representing someone like us and you're, you have the, the part-timer out there that's the weekend warrior as an agent? A, a lot of times what's good is um, the market really dictates what is going to happen. And if you're savvy and understand the market, then a lot of times I don't even deal with those agents. I know they're out there, but really they don't come across mm -hmm. my radar that often because I do my research. Um, I have worked with some investors. It's not my niche. I, I try not to, I shouldn't say I try not to, but it's just not what I attract. So in the event that I am working with someone like that, the properties that those agents would be representing probably aren't in my wheelhouse anyway, because they're overpriced for that, for an investor. Investors are pretty savvy. They go, typically they'll go to an agent that knows what they're doing if they're gonna have their own representation. I understand Scott that you like to go to the listing agent directly. Yeah. So, so you know, if the house is way overpriced, it's probably not something that you're dealing with immediately anyway. In the event that I am dealing with an agent and it's a house that you know someone really wants and uh, the smoke has been blown, as you say, we have to deal with that in a very straightforward, honest manner. I'll send comps and I try to do it in a way, you know, it can be you know, insulting uh, to an agent to tell them that they're not doing their job properly. So I try not to do that. I try to just say, you know, it's a, you provide an education and then they get to make the decisions. And, th and that's the biggest thing is I don't get to make any decisions. I've always tried to find that if I'm dealing with someone that's a lot of time inherited a house, that's always the one they've inherited the house. They, you know, they're cutting the grass, trying to take care of it. They're, the agent's there. I've always positioned where I'm like, Hey, I understand from Ohio law that I can be present when making that offer. 
so I can be there with you. I've never had success with the agent allowing me to tag along. <laughs> have, have you ever had an experience where you want the, the buyer, will you allow them to be present while making an offer? Well, again, I, I, I really like to approach things from a educational standpoint and say, hey, here's what we can do. These are the options. This is likely to happen. I would discourage any buyer from coming with me. Um, even a savvy, if they want my involvement, I want to be, I want to have the reins to be able to go and negotiate on their, in their best interest. Typically putting buyers and sellers in the same room before you have a deal pinned. It, it I know that there's great stories out there that it's gone great, but typically it doesn't bode well for the deal. Right. One of the ways we've been starting to work with realtors, um, in, in that regard of when they have a house that they they've overvalued, um, is we say, Hey, we can give you a cash offer. But if they're willing to take monthly payments for a period of time, you know, we can get them paid more. So we go to a multiple offer strategy. And the way we're connecting with realtors is we're saying, hey, do you have any houses that aren't moving or that you're not getting the traffic, you know, in the door that you uh, that they might need another solution at this time, as opposed to just dropping price? Because realtors, when things don't go right, generally speaking, it's, oh, we got to drop the price. The market's speaking to us. It's not their marketing. It's not their sales network. It's we got to drop the price. Um, so we go in there and say, okay, you don't necessarily have to drop your price. How about introducing another solution? And so we're starting to, to push that out there with realtors and the ones that are, are uh, you know, will take time to listen. They're open to that. They don't have another choice. Now for, for the folks that are watching, let's break down the different types of agents they could become. Let's first of all, break down the difference between an agent and a broker. And then if you are going to be an agent, it's kind of like specializing in medicine. Saying I want to be a doctor is not really enough. What type of doctor do you want to be? Right. You know, so let's break it down and, and tell them what's the difference between an agent and a broker. Well, the broker is who holds your license. You're working really for the broker. Everything that I sign is I am an agent. I am not a broker. Um, I, I qualify to take a broker's test. And uh, if I do that, that means things have changed dramatically. But yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, I'm operating on the broker's license. So everything I do, the broker is responsible for. Uh, he's responsible for my actions um, on on the behalf of his license. So uh, he sets some rules and some parameters. And as long as I work within them, I have a lot of free reign. Um, as an agent, I am negotiating in the client's best interest on the behalf of the broker. Okay, so now that we've identified the difference in those, let's talk about the agency. When you're an agent, you can represent buyers, sellers, both. Go ahead and dive in that a little bit and explain the differences between okay. all that. So the state of Ohio has their four, um, the four agencies, um, four different ways we can represent. So uh, the first is a simple buyer's agent. Um, you call me, you want to go look at houses, great, or you, you got my sign. However, uh, my cousin gave me a referral, whatever it is, I'm taking that person around, I'm operating in the buyer's interest, so I am a buyer's agent. Um, conversely, I could be a seller's agent or the listing agent, and that is someone has a home to sell, they come to me, I go through the listing presentation, we agree upon price, commissions, and all those things, and I list the house as the listing agent. Now, the last two, kind of where it gets dicey, and one is um, dual agency. I don't act as a dual agent ever. Um, it's um, a lot of brokerages don't allow, allow their agents to act as a dual agent because there's some extended liability. Um, what happens is we're saying we can operate in the best interest of both clients. And a lot of brokers <laughs> say kind of not possible. Um, and I won't get into the, the dynamics of why that thought process is. But for me personally, um, I'll say if you have a house for sale for 100000 and you say, but Sam, I'd take ninety if I could just get it out the door. And you said, I love this house and I'd give you a hundred and I'm representing both parties in their best interest. 
it's impossible. I have to pick one or the other or hurt you both. It's funny you say that because I've always thought that too. I'm you both agents knowing the same thing about who you really represent, like who's best interest. Because I know there's something called a net listing in Ohio. And net listing where, hey, Scott, you're selling one of your houses for $20,000. Net listing, you can sell it for anything above and beyond. Just get him 20 grand. Was it really his best interest if you can get him 30 and you're keeping 10? Whose best interest is it? Right. It's very ambiguous, all this. I think the best part of that is a good explanation. You know, and if he's very happy with twenty thousand dollars, and I happen to get thirty, um, that has to be part of the conversation before we get to the thirty, or we're going to have a longer discussion at the end, and he's <laughs> going to be upset. Exactly. So, Scott, you flip a lot of houses. We do. Do you use agents for those? Do you list them? We we do multiple things to to sell the houses that we rehab. Sometimes we owner finance it. When we owner finance it, we have our own uh, salesperson in house. Um, that's not a realtor. That's just with us. And then, uh, but a lot of our rehabs, we're listing with agents because the agents are great. They're good exposure to the market for pre-qualified buyers. And we're finding that the the amount that they make is well worth, you know, the, the services that they provide if they're good. See, I think a takeaway point right now would be that a lot of people want to be the agent if they're an investor because they want to save the three and a half percent. And just by what you're saying there, you clearly are qualified enough with 700 deals and all you've done to be a broker. And you're choosing not to be. Right. Because basically that percentage that you give them is you're just paying your operations manager. You're paying someone to keep you right. in compliance and take care of things. Clearly, you could be an agent. I'm pretty certain you could pass the test. Uh, how many deals have you done? <laughs> yeah, Three? Yeah, and, <laughs> four, four, we got so many yesterday. Yeah, four since the show started probably. And you could clearly do this, but you're choosing to say, no, no, go ahead, take three and a half percent, five percent, six percent, because they're providing a service for you. And I think that's a takeaway that when you're choosing this at home, that you're thinking, well, I want to be, don't do it out of the greed, trying to take money out of the agent's pocket or trying to, because you could do anything. You could take, you could buy your own house, list your own house, renovate your own house, sure. and it becomes a, a job. Yeah. And when you get to guys like Sam, who've done like a lot of houses, it's not really just finding the buyer. Finding the buyer is relatively not difficult if you have a nice rehabbed house. It's fixing their financial problems. Because even though they're quote unquote pre-qualified, there's always hiccups in that financing pro you know, process. Sure. And it's the good agents that get you through those, those um, financial you know, hiccups that they got to solve in the stream of getting them to closing. Those are the agents that we go with. So they're not just good agents. They also have a bit of a financial mortgage background and they can deal with that. Well, here's the thing. Uh, it's not just investors, but uh, there's, an, there's a special um, part of investors that I like and hate at the same time. Um, and it's, there's no emotional attachment, and that can be a really good thing in a transaction for someone who, who could be over-emotional. Things happen. Um, home inspections go south quickly um, on things that weren't expected. Um, there are hiccups, like you say, mortgage financing, and I'm, I mean people with 800 credit scores. Um, people, there are things that come up and underwriters are not always our friend. Um, when we're working with uh, someone who's invested emotionally, they will come outside the box with you to work on that. An investor says, I, I'm, I, I've got to keep moving. Yeah. And so they're not as concerned about the the other side of the equation. You know, they, they're keeping moving. And I understand that's a bottom line. That's a business um, transaction. The problem is the realtor is left holding the bag of emotions when things <laughs> didn't go right. And some investors can be um, a lot more easy to deal with. Um, they can make it a little bit easier to do my job when those things happen. Uh, I think the other thing about investors is 
um, there, and, and Scott, we've never worked together, so maybe, maybe not you, but the other thing is investors really don't have a lot of loyalty. Um, and there's a, there's a reason for it. They, they look at bottom line and bottom line tells them where their loyalties lie. But if I work with a family and I have worked with families where I've sold one family, seven homes, that's loyalty. I can build around that. There are graces that I get from them. You know, hey, you know what? I'm really busy tomorrow. We, we can go Saturday. If I've never worked with someone, that's a little bit more difficult of a pill to swallow. Investors are not going to wait till Saturday for you. They don't care what's going on. They're, they're going to keep moving. So that loyalty factor is, is a big deal, too. So if I hear Sam correctly, Scott, you're disloyal and cold-hearted and emotionless. So what drives you crazy about agents? <laughs> but I get the bottom line. <laughs> um, it, it, we, we really I like working with agents, but uh, we find that investors do it too. So everybody's trying to get to the next level, next level. But then you get uh, investors and agents acting as if they're at the next levels of experience, but really they're at the bottom rung. So they want to handle our asset that we just purchased. We've got our money out on it. We've got time into it. And we need to get that money back in motion again by selling it. So you get agents saying, oh, yeah, I've done X number of things and I'm this and I'm that. And then you give them a listing and it's like you get no foot traffic in the door. It's just they just don't do the job. They don't have the connections to make things happen within the new buyer market. Then you put it with another agent. All of a sudden, you've got 20 people going through the door. So that's one issue we have with agents is just that misrepresentation of their ability and, and skill level. Oh, my gosh. I think, I think it's funny, the skill level on agents, and clearly not you, but... I, it was during the real estate crash. I'm going to have twitches thinking about this. But I had this, this horse farm that I bought, and I really didn't have buyers for it. And the crash and the values were plummeting quickly. Banks were tightening up. It was just terrible. So I'm going to have to list this thing. So I literally sent out these agents, and I got this, this girl responds back to me. And she's like, yeah, I'm looking for the person that has all the buyers in their pocket. Like, you're in the equine community. You know all these people that look for this kind of stuff. This is a slam dunk. And she comes in and tells us, after this big presentation going, yeah, I, I think this would be a real challenge I'm really up for. I'm really excited to take this on. I've never really done this before. I think it'd be a real challenge for me. I'm like, it's already a challenge for me. I don't want to hire you to have a challenge. I want someone to say, Rod, this is a walk in the park. And we took a big haircut on it. It was bad. But, anyway, <laughs> but she was honest. At least you knew it. I was another agent on that one. There. I think that begs a point, though. There, there's a fine line between, I mean, I have to be truthful. And I think that's the number one thing that we should all be. But the problem with any sales industry is we are all, look at me. Uh, I'm number one. And I said, listen, I'm number one driving a white truck on Tuesdays with brown shoes because everybody's number one somewhere that in their marketing. You can find how they're the best this or that. And I think what's also really important is know your limitations. If you wanted me to sell a, an equine, prop, equine, pro, equine property, I'm going to go to a real estate agent that is well versed there. And there, there's a problem with the over delivery of, listen, I'm your man. The greatest postcard I ever saw, I got a postcard from a guy's brand new agent. And he says, I'm brand new. I'm kind of ugly and I don't have any listings. I would, I'm hungry. And, and he sent it out for real. Now, to, we're laughing and I think it's great, but um, maybe that's a little too much honesty. But I I'd love, ca I'd call him. Listen, I, he, he actually got, actually, he made it on a few websites, um, probably not in the way he intended, but he got a lot of attention from it. And he's actually still in the business. That was about eight years ago. And he's still in the business. He does a pretty good business. But there's a line between how do you continue to build a business without inflating and without telling someone that your brand experience builds experience oh when you goodness. don't have any how do you get it 
That's like, that, that's like you, like me saying, yeah, I'm a cash buyer. It comes down to closing and, and I don't have the cash. I just thought I'd get a deal and you know, it's easy to flip a deal. You can do it in three days on these uh, guru shows, you know, so, right. but it doesn't happen. And then you get no paycheck because I don't have the cash. Well, yeah, I mean, that's we, not going to happen we, to me we because do, you're going to give me a proof of funds before we get that far in the game. Yeah, that's not real hard to manufacture. Well, <laughs> we're going to have another discussion after that. Oh, you know, my gosh. But, it's, but we get a lot of deals that way because people know that we've been doing it so long that we right. close no matter what. We don't change our mind. We don't find something right. you know, that we didn't see before You know, with those out clauses. It's as is. We've done our inspection. It's cash. It's going to close. So we get deals that, you know, just like, hey, we need this thing to close quick and you can get it at this price. You know, but from your end, I'm sure you've gotten stiffed by, yeah, I'm a big cash investor and then no I, deal. I think at the end of the day, what I look for is I just look for everyone's involved in the deal that I'm in, whether it's an investor, an agent, a title company, attorney, everyone's got to be an A player. I want everybody that has the experience and knows what they're doing. I don't want to carry anyone. It's kind of like being on a sports team. If, if you know, you're the big A plus player and rocking it out, you don't want a bunch of slouches supporting you. And that's it. And that's why, I mean, there's not, you guys all get along because you're both A players and you do this and you understand it. And probably will not doing deals after this. There, there, there are times when you don't get along, but you still look for the what's the end result. Yeah. And, and you say that, listen, in a perfect world, if I could pick all superstars, I would, but transactions don't typically come together right. that way. So I'll be perfectly honest. I, I, the best thing I ever did is I hired a personal assistant um, who was unlicensed. We trained her, we got her licensed our way. And I prefer sometimes when the agent isn't an A agent or the investor isn't an A agent. Give us the reins, we'll take care of it. Hey, this is Andy from RealFlow. And a couple of the most common things we hear from our listeners are, I wanna become a real estate investor, but I don't know where to start. Or, I have a real estate investing business, but I'm having trouble scaling. We took these to heart and decided to create the Real Estate Investing Lifecycle a downloadable PDF which lays out the six foundational steps required to run a successful real estate investing business. You can download your copy today at reilifecycle.com start. Happy investing. Let's talk MLS for a second. So you don't have access to the MLS. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> With those door codes. <laughs> They're locked away. So does that, does that drive you nuts with investors that some of them might have access to MLS and they're not agents? Do, which part do, do clarify? <laughs> does it bother part? you that it feels like MLS is a superpower that only agents should have and you know there's a lot of investors that might be running around with access? It does. Um, and it does for a few reasons. One is it's about the ethics of, of my profession, not your profession. Um, if I was an investor and you gave me a code, by the way, before I was licensed, that's what I did. Um, I would get, I wasn't going to question that you were supposed to be there and you weren't. I might question why I'm paying you. But now that I'm on the other side of that and I pay my MLS dues and I'm involved in the MLS and I'm involved in, you know, the morality or uh, ethic part of it, it, it does bother me quite a bit that the MLS has become a bastardized system for, I mean, what's the point? Exactly. All right, here's a, this little takeaway because we're talking about the MLS and everything else and a shameless plug for RealFlow that produces this is you can actually just go on the phone and look at all the comps like right there in the area and see there's so much data available to us now. Where it used to be back in the mid 90s when we got started, it was really like you, the research you had to do to figure things out was crazy. 
And then now it's just right at your fingertips. And yeah. you can negotiate with the sellers right there on the spot, showing them, hey, look, the house down the street, there's interior pictures. Three doors down, sold for $80,000 less than you're asking. Looks the same as yours. You had to talk to an agent then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah talk to agents. God forbid. Right? God forbid talk to agents. But let, let's flip that for just a second. Because, and those apps are great. Um, and there's, you know, everybody seems to have an app. However, you have to know how to use it. And a lot of sellers, unfortunately, are looking at seven streets over, which happens to be a completely different school district or happens right. to be in a different township, even though, I mean, there are streets that divide townships, towns, whatever. And so they're like, but the house across the street. Yeah, understand you're in a different school, school district. And, and I deal with that all the time. So those apps can actually be a little bit detrimental and shameless app for realtors. A realtor should understand those things and can can explain those pretty well. So uh, it's it's yeah. a, it's great to have the tools, but you need to have the knowledge as well. I was in an auction one time, and literally this auctioneer standing there, and I'm at a ranch on a main road, and behind it they put in a new development, and he's like, "Guys, get these numbers up. Those houses right there are selling for three fifty. I'm like, "If you have." I'm like, that is not even remotely even a comp. This thing has caving in basement walls. Right. It's a ranch on a main road. But some guy, he got in somebody's head and just completely overbid on, I mean, he paid twice what I was going to pay. Right. I'm like, you think he's buying into what this guy said? Because there has to be some accountability with, this sounds bad, but as an agent, you are definitely held more accountable than Scott for like when you're talking about values and talking about sure. different things. I, I noticed I got, maybe you got the email too the other day. There's agents said on this one website and said, look, there was a 12% increase last month on this property. Multiply that times 12. This is what it will go up in the next 12. I'm like, did, I'll buy and this it. was I'll an agent. It. And I go, did you really just put this on here? I wish I would have seen that. I would oh, I'll, love to, uh, I would promote that. It was a, I'm, I'll send it to you. <laughs> I, I, I screenshot it and sent it to my buddy. And it's like, oh my gosh. It's like, that is really reaching for how you get the value. I wish it was true. <laughs> I, I, I do. I see people do math that way. Sometimes they're buyers, sometimes they're sellers. And you have to, again, it's about educating, you know, and when a realtor does that and lists the property, then when he doesn't get any showings at all. I mean, so. To go back to one of your points earlier, you talked about real estate agents and the difference between real estate agents um, and maybe not getting any foot traffic. There are limited things that we can do, and I try to do everything. I, I bought a Matterport camera. I do everything I can to get SEO drives up as much as I can on any property I list. However, the number one marketing tool that I have is the price, especially with all this data that we have at our fingertips. You can go on 27 different places to find a house. Um, if if no one is looking at it and it's on the MLS in this seller's market, there's a pretty good chance that we need to talk about price. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. Going back to the, the comparables and all the data that's out there, a real flow has a company called flip comp and they are basically white labeled MLS, which I'm sure that strikes a nerve with some agents out there. And clearly the MLS is the most accurate form of comparing properties. But you know, with companies like Zillow out there that they're basically PFA, the pick from air values, how are you dealing with your clients and getting them off the train of what Zillow's showing them? Again, it's about education. And uh, so the Zillow Zestimate, um, I love the Zestimate because it gives me an opportunity to show me or to show my client why a real estate agent, a, a good real estate agent is worth the value that, that we 
that I feel we are certainly. Um, estimates, I've seen them as inaccurate as 30 to 40%. I think by in 2014, Zillow came out with, uh, don't quote me on the year, but I think it was around 2014, Zillow actually came out and talked about how how they could be off by a certain amount in certain areas. So they aggregate so much data and what they don't take into account is what properties have sold maybe that we should throw out. I know when I do, I used to do BPOs, uh, broker price opinions for, for REO properties. And uh, I know how to aggregate the data to where I have to throw this out or this out. What happens when you have those sites that do it in a fashion, they just cast a really wide net and everything kind of goes in there. So your small swimmers are stuck with your big swimmers and you know properties like I talked about earlier that might be on the same side of the street or opposite side of the street and a different township, I can know that as a realtor, I'm able to put that human touch on there and say, hey, these are systems that we are gonna eliminate those. So as far as, it doesn't bother me because I will be perfectly honest, there's probably not, and maybe I'll offend some realtors here, but there's probably not a lot of realtors that can do what Zillow does as far as delivering the client a pretty package of houses. Everybody thinks their website is so great, but in reality, people still, my clients, your clients, uh, future clients, past clients, they're all going to Zillow for a lot of that information, whether it's right or wrong. Wow, my gosh, this is this is a huge topic and we could dive into the whole comparable thing like crazy. We're gonna have to have you guys back on another time because there's just not enough time to go through all of it right now. I, I mean, I could tell the stories on this myself. I should be a guest on the show talking about my trials and uh, <laughs> tribulations with Zillow. <laughs> so anyhow, I really appreciate you guys being on here. And what I'd like you to do is give one takeaway for our audience on why it would be a great idea to become a licensed professional and why it would be a great idea not to become a licensed professional so they can make an educated decision at home. Scott, I'll defer to you. You can go first. <laughs> why I think you should be an investor over an agent uh, because you get a lot of flexibility when you're, um, when you're an investor. So if the market turns and it crashes like it did like in, oh, well, for us it was 06, 40 houses going through financing, all qualified buyers, every single you know deal tanked. And then we were stuck with those houses, you know, drop. But being an investor, we were able to adjust to the market and we just found a different strategy that worked. We started doing rent to owns, owner financing and different things. For, for us, I'm not tied to showing houses, anybody else's schedule. We really control our time and it just makes it more fluid. Kind of feel like as an investor, it's easier for me to build a team. I don't have to find a licensed agent or get somebody to go through agency. I can find somebody that works for me that can do just about anything you know that I want to get done or to you know to delegate out. Um, so and I know on big deals, you know, your realtors can make you know a little bit of money, but on the investor end, the amount of money that we make per deal is so much greater. So I would definitely want to be on you know my end of the stick. And, and as far as becoming a licensed realtor, I think it, it really is what you want. I make, um, I, I might surprise you with what I make sometimes. Um, the volume I can do is probably greater than the average real estate investor, especially if you're not getting into a, a large group of investors, which um, those always work out well, right, partners? <laughs> um, but, um, but I like I like the fact that I'm a, being a licensed real estate agent. I'm working in a profession where we we do maintain a lot of um, 
hopefully we're maintaining and upholding a lot of professional standards. Um, not to say that investors don't, but I don't know what I'm getting with someone who's unlicensed. I do know what I'm expected, I expect to get and what the National Association of Realtors expects to get, the Ohio Realtors expects to get from a licensed real estate agent. Um, I like that because there's also repercussions. If someone colors outside those lines and it harms a client, there's, there's avenues that we can recover things. Um, I have seen investors that have done things, you know, you, you said earlier how easy it was to manufacture a proof of funds. Um, I, I, I don't even think about things in that aspect because I know if a real estate agent that's licensed did that, we have a completely different scenario. So I like regimen. I, I have a military background. I like <laughs> rules. I enjoy rules. And I know that having the fluidity that you mentioned is great and I enjoy that, but I, within reason. And I think that my profession gives me so much opportunity. Yes, scheduling showings, going on listing appointments, but I, I have learned how to do that within my own parameters and my own standards. So I'm doing it in a fashion that I still get to serve my family, myself, and do things that I want to do. And I'm not just, you know, booking appointments whenever willy nilly. So. I'll tell you what, that is so well put from both of you guys because I know how you feel about. Yes, we can make so much more money as investors. And I definitely know the volume that I miss out on by not being an agent. I think about that constantly because you can just burn through listings and sales and really crank it up. And it's like, I have thought about being an agent many times because of the volume, because we're always had to hunt for that next deal and, and try to put things together. So do you have any issues with an investor that becomes an agent? No, not at all. You mean while they're still investing? Yes. No, not at all. I think that they bring um, a very a good aspect. And here's the thing about any industry. I think that when you have people that have different backgrounds and diversity, it, it only brings better to the industry. We always like to wrap up with talking about freedom in the freedom. So what freedoms has being in the real estate business given you? Well, I'm raising three sons. Um, uh, my wife and I, we like to do things based on our schedule and what's best for our kids. Um, I was a Cleveland fireman for 17 years and I missed a lot of baseball games and I missed a lot of concerts. And um, now I have the freedom to choose what's important, what standards do I have in place? And when you can live with standards, which my industry, the way I built my business has allowed me to do, I don't miss baseball games. I don't miss concerts. Um, I might miss a grocery shopping tour, but um, but there's a choice behind all of that. And being a licensed real estate agent in the state of Ohio in the market that I've built for myself has been uh, really freeing. Love it. Scott? Yeah, that's, that's great. Most agents don't get to the status that you do. They're running around Saturday, Sunday, whenever somebody calls. <laughs> you know, man, same thing. I, I don't miss games. I don't miss kids stuff. I got six kids uh, coaching varsity basketball at the kids' high school and just, you know, just involved, you know, in that way. So I don't have all the time to work. You know, I want to do other things too. Um, for me, being an investor, really, um, that lifestyle is really promoted by being an investor because I can get other people to do stuff that needs to get done that, uh, that I don't want to do or don't have time to do. But then also that even if I don't have time to work, or I choose not to, um, we still have rental income coming in because we get multiple streams of income from lending private money, you know, from having rentals. So I don't necessarily, quote unquote, have to work and I still have income coming in. So being an investor, just I don't know, the whole package is uh, it just suits what I want. 
So guys, thanks so much for being on the show. I think I'm gonna have to have you both back because we have to dive deeper into some of this stuff. You've been watching the Real Estate Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Rob the House Guy. And remember, nothing works unless you do. This episode is brought to you by RealFlow, the smart way to invest in real estate. All the tools you need to automate lead generation and marketing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe.